Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When it comes to federal investment in R&D, failures like Solyndra are held up as evidence of wasteful government spending, while success stories go largely unnoticed. But what kind of returns do we see on investments in scientific research by government? And should government funding emphasize basic or more practical applied research? To answer those questions and more, I'm joined today by Benjamin Jones. Ben is a professor of entrepreneurship and strategy at Northwestern University, as well as a faculty director of the Kellogg Innovation and Entrepreneurship Initiative. This summer, he authored a great paper, Science and Innovation, the Underfueled Engine of Prosperity. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. In the paper, you say the U.S. invests about 3% of GDP in R&D. So is that a lot you know, in the post-war era, a little? Where does that kind of rank? It's really about the same. You know, for the most part, the U.S. is quite consistent, like other countries, uh, in how much they invest, uh, kind of the entire, what share of our total resources we invest in a given year in research and development. Um, the composition of it has shifted in an important way, which is to say that the private sector makes up an increasingly large portion of that 3%, and public investment, which really supports science in particular, makes up a declining share and in fact, the public support portion is now at its lowest level in about the last 70 years. Does that matter, that composition, how it's divvied up between public and private? It matters in the sense that what a lot of the public money is doing is science, and what a lot of the private money is doing is application and the creation of specific goods and services. And those are, of course, complements. You can think of the science as opening up new doorways, and then the private sector is kind of walking through those doorways and making uh, applications from the new knowledge that's been generated. The fact that we're doing less science, you know, as a share of our resources is, I think, concerning because, you know, we're in some sense opening up many fewer doorways uh, and therefore uh, not having as many opportunities, not giving as many opportunities to the private sector in a sense uh, for, for them to make use of. So why doesn't government invest in R&D the way it used to? I think the answer is probably salience to the public. That, that the public, and I think that would include policymakers, don't fully understand the value of these investments to our future potential and progress. And you know, I, I think the first thing actually is, is not so much that the public share has declined, it's that 3% isn't a whole lot to start with. You know, the evidence is that whether it's from the private sector or the science investments, these are extraordinarily high returns investments to society. And of course, the stakes are, are in some sense obvious. We kind of know it's important, right? It's, it drives what? It drives higher standards of living, you know, better, better products and services, more productive workers who get paid more and compete better on the world stage. It improves our health and it makes our, our lives longer. It makes our lives healthier. And of course, it's very important to national security as well. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a big puzzle as to why we only do 3% in the first place, given that the evidence seems to suggest that it, it is so valuable. To the more specific question you asked, you know, I think that, I think that our, our, our public interest, it waxes and wanes. I think probably becomes more salient in moments of 
fear and sense of competition internationally. So kind of the Sputnik moment was a moment, you know, that sparked the Apollo program is a moment where the U.S. suddenly feels behind and not just behind in general, but behind against uh, uh, the Cold War adversary, the Soviet Union. And so then there's a huge increase in investment, of course, the Apollo program, particularly in the space race. You know, I think later you'll see that, that you know, take, take a modern context today, uh, COVID, you know, where, where there's COVID, we have a very clear challenge, you get operation warp speed. Suddenly the government is very invested in trying to solve that challenge. I think the sense of China rising today is also something that is pressing on Congress uh, effectively in, in many ways to, to increase our investments in this space. Um, so I think a sense of threat can make it more salient to the public. But in some sense, the deeper question is why isn't it more salient in general? Why are we investing so little all the time? You know, even in Apollo moments, we're not investing that much uh, given the benefits that it seems to bring. Walk me through the process a little bit of how we figure out what the right numbers, how much should we spend? And I would guess that might begin by just looking at, you know, the returns to public spending on R&D. Well, just to start with a high level total number, that 3%. So, you know, evidence suggests that, you know, for every dollar we put into the R&D machine, kind of across the waterfront of R&D policies and investments, on average, that's returning something like $5 or more back in social value. In other words, put $1 in, you get $5 back. And that's an amazing return. I mean, it's an incredible return. If you had, if any of us had that machine sitting on our desk, you could spend all day putting in, you know, put in 10, get back 50, put in 100, get back 500. Pretty good machine to have. And and so we seem to be just really under investing uh, on on the margin uh, compared to what we could be doing. You know, and if you you could imagine doubling it, three percent to six percent, or you know, that would that could really elevate the growth rate of the economy. It could not just elevate the growth rate. It could. It could make us live longer lives. We would solve problems like Alzheimer's faster. We might create clean energy technologies faster. All sorts of things that we would do that would have that would have uh, lots lots of value. In some ways, the harder question actually is what exactly would you invest in there? And and it's, it's harder in the sense that well, first of all, again, a lot of these policies interact, um, but also because we have better information about certain kinds of policies than others, uh, and and we just don't know about certain things. It's like it's a little harder to say, for example, when the National Science Foundation invests in mathematics, you know, what's the benefit? Um, it's a little harder to trace. They're very you can tell lots of very clear stories where there's enormous benefits. Um, you, know, you don't get cryptocurrency without mathematics. You don't get the mobile mobile technology and GPS satellites without mathematics. Um, you know, all sorts of things. But but you know, um, that's a little further away from application. That sort of investment in math. Whereas when you look in the private sector, you can often see how an additional dollar of R&D leads to something very concrete uh, right in front of you. But what I would tell you, we can go into this in much more detail if you'd like, but what, what I would say is that when you study these individual R&D policies, you tend to kind of find over and over again that they have very high returns themselves. So you know, a simple policy would be to, just to, to expand, our, expand our investment across the range of, of inputs uh, into the R&D process, which are, which are very many. Rather than focusing, should we spend it on this, you know, on this area, that area? One of the debates is how much should be very basic research, just kind of raw science versus more applied. Does that matter in these calculations of return? I think what we know is that the returns look high in both cases. We don't know which high, which return is higher, and nor are they necessarily separable, right? Because you know applied research builds on the basic research, right? Uh, but also, actually, maybe more surprising to people, basic research often builds on applied research. You know, a lot of the really interesting understandings we developed of nature actually come from people solving very particular applied work 
So for example, Louis Pasteur in the middle of the 19th century, we all know Louis Pasteur because we get pasteurized milk, right? When we get, we get it from the, you know, from the grocery. He was someone who was doing a lot of applied work in food spoilage and fermentation, right? But he's also the person who generated the germ theory of disease, which is one of the most basic biomedical insights there is. And it unleashes you know, much longer lives for all of us uh, through antibiotics, vaccines, and other things that, co that come later. But you know, the idea that these little microbes we couldn't see uh, are causing us to be ill that, that was, that was uh, not appreciated before Pasteur. And he's really connecting it to his applied work in food spoilage. You know, to try to separate basic research from applied research, in some ways, you know, it's a natural question. It's a hard question to answer because they interplay so clearly. Um, what we probably do best with is, 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 is spreading our bets uh, and doing more of both. So one criticism of basic research I've heard is that we, meaning the United States, will do the initial research and then other countries take that new knowledge and create their own industries. Is that something we should worry about? Or should we be doing more applied research and helping fund domestic startups? So somewhat contending imperatives in R&D, right? So, so the, the question at some level is, do we just wanna get as good as we can ourselves? Or is it really about how we rate versus somebody else, right? And so in a, in a health contest, I mean, if we can live a longer life, you know, and we can solve Alzheimer's, we're pretty happy. And we're probably pretty happy if people in Switzerland and South Africa also live longer lives uh, and solve Alzheimer's. Um, whereas in say a, say a national security context, you might wanna really be ahead, right? It might seem like you need to be ahead. And so I think that's where, that's, that in particular is where that concern might, might raise itself more acutely. Um, but I would say that, you know, basic research is done by people and very sophisticated people who are very specialized in very deep understandings of certain kinds of phenomena from physics and chemistry to medicine to uh, computer science, to anything else. And when you do the basic research and you invest in the basic research, you're not just investing in the creation of ideas, you're investing in creating the people in your country who are the best world masters of those ideas and are the ones who are going to um, be able to fully understand them and also use them and take them to the next level. And so that human capital component, the people part is much stickier. It's in the country you invest in. It's not, those people aren't going to the other countries, right? And so I think, you know, in a sense, the way you hold on to the advantage of, of basic research is largely because you're investing in the people in your country who are in fact doing it and then have this leg up advantage. And one way to see that of course is, you know, why do we see clustering of innovative activity on the map? Why is it in the US so much? Why is it in Silicon Valley? Why do you see a lot of biomedical research in Cambridge, Massachusetts? You know, it's because that's where the people are and they cluster with all these different specialties. And that becomes a very sticky and sort of self-fulfilling uh, investment. Uh, and so I think, you know, yes, it will be the case that basic research will spill over to some extent to other countries. In many ways, that's a good thing because other people can benefit. But in terms of keeping ahead, that human capital piece uh, is a key part of why you why you do keep ahead through those investments well we can create those people in this country uh or we can bring those people in from other other countries how are we doing in both those areas it's a mixed scorecard the u.s does obviously very well at higher level education and research institutions people from all over the world want to come and study in those institutions if you look at our domestic pipeline in terms of our k-12 education we seem to do very poorly compared to many other countries uh, and you know, recent evidence suggests that our systems uh, in the United States create what we might call lost Einsteins, which is to say we see lots of kids who are great at math, say in third grade and have the kind of technical capacities that you would think would lead them into very strong inventive and 
entrepreneurial STEM careers, uh, but don't get on that pathway. And it can be related to their household income, their gender, uh, their ethnic group, uh, racial group. Uh, and so we seem to have a lot of talent that doesn't migrate well through the K-12 system in the US. And so we're foreclosing kind of the pipeline of talent uh, to some extent. I think that's a, that's a great place for the US to be trying to do reform and investing uh, to create that. Uh, it's, it's a matter not just of the overall success of the nation, it's also a matter of uh, individual opportunity uh, as well for all these kids. Um, I think it very much goes to the American dream. The other side, of course, is importing talent through immigration policy. And this is, of course, an area where the U.S. has always, you know, for a long time gained enormously. Uh, you know, if you look at if you look at who does a lot of the great research in the United States, who does a lot of the invention and the patenting, um, who starts a lot of the great companies, the answer is, is surprisingly often people born outside the U.S. who moved to the U.S. Um, and so immigrants have been have for a long time played an outsized role in our uh, scientific, inventive and entrepreneurial system and help make the U.S the most sort of effective innovation system uh, in the world. And so, you know, that's been a strength, but of course, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of conflict over immigration policy in the United States uh, and we've been stymied for any kind of major immigration reform for some time. Uh, you know, and I think, I think there's a lot of dimensions to what the types of immigration and what's going on there, but certainly in terms of foreclosing uh, foreclosing access to our system and being able to draw in sort of the best and the brightest around the world to participate, uh, not just in science and scientific research, but to participate in it in the United States um, is really damaging our long-run prospects uh, as, as a nation that will lead uh, in the world. We've had Nick Bloom on here talking about his uh, work, the really kind of game-changing ideas getting harder to find and to find those. We need to put more resources, resource, including more researchers into, in, into discovery. That seems hard if we keep finding more people to kind of push the technological frontier. Is that is that kind of a natural limitation on, on doing science or might we, I don't know, use AI to become a kind of a super research assistant to, you know, complement that those activities? Things like AI will help. Um, it really depends on people. And and I don't think we are actually limited in some fundamental sense. Um, you know, the, the it, it innovation may be getting harder, and there's lots of evidence for that. But again, you know, the U.S. is putting less and less public dollars into R&D. It's interesting that, you know, what do we think drives productivity and the long-run growth rate of the United States? It's it's learning new and better ways of doing things. It's making us more productive, and that really comes back to R&D. So, you know, if we have a productivity growth slowdown, which we seem to have this century, you know, and then we look and we say, oh, and the government's not as investing as much as a share of GDP as it used to. It's half what we did in 1980. You know, well, maybe we should do a lot more there. And, 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 it, and it's scaling funding into R&D. But of course, to answer your question as well, it's, it's not just scaling resources in a financial sense, it's, it's scaling the people pipeline. And I think we have lots of talented people who are not going into this space. And there's certainly lots of people abroad who traditionally are very eager to come to the United States and participate, uh, but cannot do so because of uh, visa category limitations. I, I sort of wish science policy was just about coming up with a number. It'd be a lot easier to analyze uh, but it seems like it gets it gets very messy trying to figure out if we need to be doing something and making those changes as far as the actual practice of science. Yeah, I mean the practice is quite complex, obviously, and there's actually many government institutions that are involved. So you know the biggest uh, we always talk about the NIH, health, the NSF, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, uh, Department of Defense is actually the biggest funder, um, and on from there. And they have very different kinds of, of grant systems, ways of reviewing, length of grants, amounts of grants. We, we have a whole 
rich, a rich, rich array of public policy. There's also a lot of philanthropies who are increasingly in the game of funding science and, and their own rather idiosyncratic ways. But you know, if you were to boil it down for me and I have to say about, about how, I think diversity of approaches is really key. And I think that I think that there's pretty, pretty, if not systematic evidence, but kind of compelling storytelling and evidence that suggests that we heard too much uh, into a smaller set of discovery pathways. And the, the reason you want diversity is because first of all, nobody has a crystal ball, right? So, so I mean, if, if we knew what was gonna happen when you started an R&D project, we wouldn't have to do it. I mean, the whole point is that we're, we're going into the unknown. We're basically stumbling around in the dark looking for a light switch and trying to flip it on. And we're gonna miss, we're gonna fail. You know, the best people, Nobel Prize winners, they all fail a lot, you know, and then they have a big breakthrough, you know, because it's fundamentally uncertain. And, and partly because of that, you, you should be very skeptical when someone tells you, I know that this is the thing we should be doing because nobody knows that's not the thing we should do. And there are, I, mean, I think we have better guesses and we have worse guesses, but you should never be overconfident. Uh, and, and so, you know, that says spread your bets. We, you know, you'd be very surprised where some of the big insights come from and the, and, and the spillovers that come that it just come, go in unexpected direction. You know, a, a classic example of that would be extremophile bacteria, right? So there's, a, there's a two biologists from the University of Indiana who go out to Yellowstone National Park, famous American monument, and they're asking a very basic question about life, which is whether life can exist in really extreme environments. Uh, and so they're looking at hot springs, you know, old faithful, et cetera. Uh, and they find in fact that there are these bacteria that actually live in near boiling water. Amazing. Who, who knew life could survive in those conditions? Okay, that's just a really curious, interesting discovery about the nature of life. But it turns out that that very bacterium that they discovered has an enzyme in it, which later would prove in a completely unexpected way to be absolutely essential to being able to replicate DNA at scale in a laboratory. And basically the entire biotechnology industry and all of its forms coming even now to COVID vaccines and COVID testing, all of PCR tests, that process, which is the essential tool of, of, of replicating genes, depends on that very bacterium and one particular enzyme in that bacterium. Without that, we, would not have, we wouldn't be able to do any of these things. And so, you know, science is going to open up entire new industries in ways that we cannot expect. And, and, and most of it won't. I and mean, most of it's people are going to be stumbling around in those hot springs and they come back up. There's nothing here or, or they find something, but it's not applied anytime soon. But you really don't know where these big insights are going to come from. And so we really need to spread our bets and not pretend that we have a crystal ball. When entrepreneurs try something and fail, they're still celebrated for their risk-taking. But with government, we don't seem to have nearly as much tolerance for failure. If we want to expand government research funding, will Americans have to become more tolerant of the failures that naturally come with bleeding-edge research? I agree. I mean, I, I, it seems, you know, Solyndra, of course, is a common example. People like to throw around of a, of a mis government investment misfire. But I think this is why I go back to salience. People often don't see the benefits directly. Like I did, the story I just told you about where biotechnology comes from. Most people don't know. They don't understand that that depended on science. They don't understand that Uber actually depends directly on Albert Einstein. And that Albert Einstein's insights depend directly on an 18th century mathematician named Bernard Riemann. They don't, that just, it's because it's so technical. These are, these are very technical things. The spillovers happen in unexpected and slow ways. So the public does not really appreciate that. And then they see failure, to your point, and they're like, ah, we wasted taxpayer dollars, right? So a couple of points. First of all, venture capitalists waste money all the time because they know they don't have a crystal ball. They spread their bets and they're looking for the big thing and they miss most of the time. That's the private sector. That's not the public sector. 
pharmaceutical firms, large pharmaceutical firms, for every 10 drugs they try, you know, going into going into a phase one trial, only one is going to actually become uh, a approved product. I mean, they fail all the time. And that's a private sector firm. They're making the best bets they can possibly make with their own money, and they're failing all the time. And that's okay, because that is the nature of R&D. And so, you know, we have to get into a mindset where we allow for failure, and that we expect failure. And I can tell you one comforting thing, which is, you know, if, you know, if you look at to the public who may think, oh, science is sort of useless, so most of it's totally useless. If you take every patent issued in the United States, this is a study that I did with a co-author, and you, and you look in them to see what kind of science they build on, if they, do they reference specific science or not, you actually find that the vast majority of all scientific articles will flow through eventually into some patent. Maybe not directly, maybe they're not cited directly by a patent, but you know, a, a science article is built on by another science article and that one's cited by a patent, right? And there's a process where basic kind of flows towards applied and flows into the actual marketplace inventions that becomes goods and services in front of people. We see an enormous connectivity. This kind of idea that there's an ivory tower and science is doing things that are not relevant to the public and, and, and you know it's not valuable. That is not what we see. It's not what we see in the macro and we look at the returns to the investment. It's not what we see in the micro. We look down to every particular scientific article. And we look what, what use it actually has. We find an enormous range and a rich range of use. Often hard to trace. You have to actually go and trace it, but it's there. And so we need the public to kind of come to an orientation where they don't, don't expect to understand every detail. This is science and, and don't, don't, and don't demand that you're going to succeed when it's impossible because there's going to be failure and you need to fail and recognize that the stakes here are so high for our standard of living, our workforce, our health, our national security, that we can just go and make these investments that drive those things. When people hear about what's happening in science, many of them worry about AI and robots and biotechnologies. Some people think we're progressing too quickly and we can't control these technologies that we're creating. How do you respond to those fears? Well, you know, these are very interesting questions. I mean, if you go back to life before the Industrial Revolution and before the Enlightenment, say, you know, humans made very, very little progress for almost all of human history. Uh, and if you want to kind of go, I mean, on net, what's on net, averaging across all the things we've figured out in science and technology, do we live a better life today than we did when we only lived to age 35? Your children were likely to die by age five most of the time. And you know you were a farmer with very few tools, working very long hours all the time, and struggling with nutrition and, and starvation much of the time. You know that that's one world. Now that's not to say that certain technologies might be problematic, and I think we do produce problematic technologies. And you can debate which ones are, which ones aren't. You know, um, you know, and, and there's there's a double-edged sword to a lot of these things. Um, but you know, I think when you look when you step back and you say, let's look at human history and the human experience, right? you realize just that on net, the positives that have come from this historically, at least over a long, long history now, have really been enormously positive. And so, you know, when I look at a technology that comes and that looks potentially problematic in which I might, you know, do things like echo chambers and social media, it seems like a problematic aspect of the internet. Um, and, you know, you, there's problematic, uh, problematic applications of certain things in the context of weapons of mass destruction. I mean, there's, you know, AI may have comp complex and problematic properties, you know, in some forms, but if not in others. I, I, I think the answer to these things are actually, you know, in other words, we've, if, if technology creates a new problem, the answer to that is going to be actually a new technology. 
a new insight that's going to solve that problem. And so a different way to think about what science technology does, particularly applied applications, what are we, we're trying to solve problems. We have a problem, we don't know how to solve it. People die of cancer, people get Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, everyone's not very productive on a farm, right? And so when you, you're identifying a problem and you're trying to come up with a better solution to that problem, that, that it's, you know, science and technology can sound esoteric, but that's what we're doing, right, all the time. And that's this inventive people, creative aspect. Um, and so if technology, you know, does good things, like the internet does a lot of great things, maybe it does some problematic things, you know, okay, so what are those problems? Let's figure out what those problems are and let's try to solve them. And I mean, that's gonna probably call it, might call it some regulation and that could be very useful, some government institutional sort of ideas as, in, as innovations, but also it can call on new technologies that can try to solve those problems, new companies that don't have some of these flaws, you know, these kinds of things. And so I think, I think our, I mean, I think if you look at the scope of human history, I wanna bet on more technology, not on less technology. Over at my blog and newsletter, I've written about the long bet between Robert Gordon and Eric Brynjolfsson about whether we'll see faster productivity growth over the rest of this decade. Where do you come down on that? I'm a tech optimist in the sense that I think there are all sorts of problems we know now that we don't know how to solve. Those who sort of think we've already, you, you hear this generationally, oh, we figured everything else out, already out. You heard this back in the Industrial Revolution at one point, you've heard it about the early computers, like, you know, oh, we've done everything we could ever do with computers, there's no more application, that was before the internet. You hear this kind of thing all the time. I, I think I, uh, I look at the world and I see all sorts of problems that we'd like to solve. I think just in health alone, there are so many problems we haven't solved. And we have many, many uncertainties and doors to go through and biology is producing radically surprising insights and tool, new tools all the time uh, that, are, that, are, that are incredible. Um, space travel, artificial intelligence, um, you know, any number of um, deep understandings of nature and reality that we still haven't figured out. I mean, physics is sort of puzzling through very deep questions. So, so I see enormous opportunities for progress. Now, so in that sense, I'm an optimist. Now, I also think it is getting harder, right? So I, I think that I think that we've kind of, whether you think we kind of pluck the low hanging fruit first, um, or you, you know, one thing I emphasize in my work is that there's just so much we've already figured out that to be an expert now, you have to be sort of very narrow uh, at the frontier. And so your kind of chance for having wide insights as individuals is very low. Um, you know, it used to be they take the, the first airplane from the Wright brothers, two people, they're kind of leading aeronauts of their time. And then you go to a modern airframe from Boeing or Airbus, and we're talking, you know, 30 different deep engineering disciplines just to design and produce the engines. You know, so, so, you know, there's an enormous amount of knowledge that goes into say a modern technological version of something. And so for one person to kind of push that frontier, um, is increasingly challenging. So I think that to me, that so that may be why we have a productivity growth slowdown. It may be just getting, it is getting harder, but I'm an optimist because I think there's so much more we can do and I think we will solve it. And this is where I come back to effort. We just have to try, right? And we aren't trying very hard. That's the reality. We're not trying anywhere as hard as we could. We're leaving a lot of talent out of the game. We're not investing anywhere near what we could. The social returns to that look very, very high. So, I mean, to me, the path is fairly clear. So uh, to finish up, uh, a lot of interest in Washington about doing more uh, on R&D and there's a ever evolving R&D plan, you know, moving yeah. its way through Congress. What would be your sort of policy advice uh, on science and innovation investment in R&D? Well, the kind of the Endless Frontiers Act and its evolution, I, I mean, I think it's rolling in the right direction. So I'm very positive about it. I think that, you know, more we can do through the NSF, the Department of Energy, uh, or other ways, I mean, it will be it will be to our collective benefit. So I think it's a great investment. When I look at the numbers they're talking about, I think it's still very small compared to what could be done. And, and so I think there's always more to do. Um, and, but nonetheless, I mean, I don't wanna let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, I, and I'm encouraged that, that Congress is thinking in these ways. 
Um, and, you know, whether you get there from competition with China or some other motivation, I mean, it, it will be hugely beneficial. And so I am, I am very glad to see it. My guest today has been Benjamin Jones. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 